would invite you to keep your Bibles open to, uh, to Genesis chapter 15. We're going to look at the entire chapter uh, this morning. And uh, while you're doing that, make sure that you also get that, that sermon outline that you find inside of the announcement sheet in case there's some things that, uh, that you want to write down and think about during the rest of the week or some things that you want to, uh, to remember and, and try to apply to your life. We, we provide you that tool, uh, and, and you can do with it whatever you want. Um, you know, in writing down notes, uh, you know, making a paper airplane, but it's, but it's there for you, and I would invite you to get it out at this time. And while you're doing that, I just want to uh, give a personal greeting to all of the people that, that are streaming us right now. Uh, even though you're not with us right now, we're really grateful for your presence and for you participating in our assembly this morning. And I'm going to invite you at home, as well as all of us here this morning in our, our main auditorium to... Uh, to join us in prayer and ask God to bless us as we go through this study. Father, we all come to you and into your presence with all kinds of needs today. And what we're grateful for, Father, is is that although there are these great truths in your word that do bring us comfort, what brings us comfort, what brings us the strength and, and the peace is your presence. And for you to allow us to come into a relationship with you where you become our father and we are your children and for all of the things that are implied and inherent in that kind of a relationship, we are grateful and thankful. And as we study this text this morning that is going to, to, to broaden our understanding of what it means to be in a relationship with you, Father, all the days of our life and in all of the circumstances that we meet, we're asking you, Father, uh, oh so deeply in, in our hearts, that you will give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it in such a way that we are transformed. And this we ask, Father, in all humility, in the name of the Christ, the Messiah. Amen. The Bible spells out a couple of ways that human beings like you and me can glorify God. The first one is in the way that we love God and in the way that we do our, our good deeds. And I'm thinking in particular of Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 14, where Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount tells the disciples that are standing there around him, he tells them, you are the light of the world, that your, light is, your, world, your, your life is like a, a light that can be seen all over the world. You're like a town built on a hill that cannot be hidden. And he says, neither do people light a lamp and, and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house in the same way it's a city set on a hill and a light in a dark room. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and then do what, church? Glorify your Father. And what Jesus is, is saying there is that there is a way that we can do our good deeds and there is a way that we can love people that in effect gives God glory and, give, and people give Him the thanks rather than us. Now, that is an incredibly difficult thing to do. I mean, it, it talks about uh, a way of doing our good deeds and a way of loving people that kind of gets beyond our own 
guilt and our own fear and our own pride and all of the other neuroses that we sometimes do ministry with, it gets beyond that in order to do that good deed in a way, to love people in such a way that God gets the glory rather than us getting the thanks. There's a second way, and the second way, besides loving people and doing good deeds that way, is to trust God. And for this passage, we go to Romans chapter 4, and in verses 18 through 22, Paul is, Paul is trying to help people to understand what real faith in God is all about. And he's using this passage from, uh, from Abraham's life where he's struggling with the lack of a son. And he says, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise. Next slide, please. The promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully, fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. That's why it is said, accredited to him as righteousness. To not trust God is to give God a vote of no confidence. It is to blackball God. There is perhaps nothing more hurtful than to know somebody for a really long time and to know them really, really well. There is nothing more hurtful than to say to that person, I know you, but I don't trust you. And that's something that humans do every day, intentionally or not, when it comes to God. Now, this example that Paul uses in Romans chapter 4 to make the point about faith is the story that we're going to be looking at this morning in the life of Abraham. It's found in Genesis chapter 15, and I'm going to give you my own personal opinion about this, this chapter. It is perhaps the most important chapter in the entire Old Testament. may not be the most, but it, it is right up there. And it deals with the issue of trust. And I want to begin, I've, I've used um, uh, this fellow's uh, uh, quotes from this fellow over the last several weeks. It's uh, probably the guy through the interpretation series written the best commentary on Genesis that you can find out there. It's a fellow by the name of Walter Brueggemann. And he writes the text of Genesis 15 taken as a unit, asks whether Abraham can, in fact, trust. And it asks if Yahweh can, in fact, be trusted. It is faith which permits Abraham to trust and God to be trusted. It is unsure faith that wonders about the delay. The issues are set here. And the remainder of the Abrahamic story explores the answers. Now in this text, Genesis chapter 15, all 21 verses, we're going to see three things, at least three things. The first is we're going to see doubts exposed, and then we're going to see those doubts addressed and then the last thing we'll see at the end of the chapter is that there's this anchor that is revealed. Now, the question I want to begin with as we think about Genesis 15 is, where in the world do doubts come from? Where in the world do doubts come from? You know, a lot of times we don't know we have doubts until the doubts are triggered, and they're triggered by things like, like delays or setbacks or frustration or the unexpected. Here's where I think they come from. Doubts come when life doesn't make sense. Doubt comes when life doesn't make sense. Another way of saying it is when you don't have all the information you need. And so 
All kinds of things, as you know, come at us in this life. And I want to show you a commercial. I see it's, it's up here on the screen right now. It's from Nationwide. You know that life comes at you fast. That started all over with the sound. <laughs> Honey? Yeah? Do you know what this light switch does? Which one? The, the one on the right. I never use that one. All right, will you look? Yep. On? Off. On? No. Are you looking? Yes. Huh. Off. On? Off. On? Off. On? Off. On? Off. Life comes at you fast. Say it with me. Life comes at you fast. When life comes at you, that's when the doubts are exposed. That's when doubt is exposed. Now, in the previous chapter, there's a coalition of five kings that rebel against the coalition of four kings. And the four kings are victorious, and they carry off Lot. They go down to the southern end of the, the Dead Sea, and what they do is they, they, they kind of rampage the area, and they, 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 they take away and loot the city of Sodom, and they take away all of the people, and they take away all of the goods. And the next thing you know, Abraham's finding out that they've also taken away Lot. And Abraham decides he's got to do something about that, so he takes 318 of his trained men, and he goes against the, the great army of these four kings. And Abraham routs the army, and he returns with Lot. Now we get to chapter 15. At some time, the chapter begins after this. Sometime after this, sometime after the adrenaline of battle has begun to calm down, Abraham is thinking about his life. He's been to battle, and he's avoided some close calls. Life is, in a lot of different respects, doing pretty well. But not everything is, is right in Abraham's life. There are some things down the road that doesn't make sense to him, and Abraham is beginning to brood a little bit. And it's in this moment that God shows up and speaks some of the most tender words in all of the Old Testament. He says to Abraham in a vision, Do not be afraid. I am your shield, your very great reward. God knows that Abraham is troubled, and he knows that Abraham is doubting, and that Abraham is afraid. And God speaks into the heart of this, this troubled old man. And he says, Abraham, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And then God makes Abraham turn all of his thoughts towards God. You know, Abraham is brooding. He's thinking about, he's thinking about all of the things that God has said. And, and all of a sudden, God is getting Abraham's attention off of all of the thoughts and the words and all of that stuff that's been said in the past. And to get his eyes on God, he says, I am your shield. Which means that there's nothing that gets to you unless it goes through me first. And then he says, I am your great reward. The Hebrew word there is shakar, and that text is shakarka. And what it means or implies is, is, is a gift. It is that I am your shield and I'm your great reward. In other words, I come into your life as a gift. I come into your life as a grace. And as Abraham in this vision hears these words, 
his, his doubts begin to be exposed. He says, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? Now, believe it or not, we've been in the Abraham story for a long time, and this is the first time that Abraham actually dialogues with God. And in his heart, Abraham and Sarah are still living in barrenness. I mean, one of the big things that got him traveling in the first place, one of the first things that triggered this entire move out of Ur of the Chaldees to Haran and then finally down into the Promised Land is this idea of descendants beginning with a son that will come from their own bodies. But this promise doesn't make sense anymore. It doesn't make sense anymore because it looks like to Abraham and it looks like to Sarai that the years of fertility are gone. I mean, where is the son? Where is my son? When you said son, God, did you mean the young servant Eliezer of Damascus who's taking care of my household? In Romans chapter 4, Paul is telling us that Abraham looked at his body. That's why he's brooding. He's looking at his body and there's no child coming from this. He looks at Sarah. She's past those years of fertility. I mean, how in the world is there supposed to be a son? Now, notice what Abraham's doing here. Abraham is being emotionally honest. He is not keeping things bottled up. Abraham's doubt is, is his doubt and his brooding over these promises that in life not making sense is about to turn him into a wretched, disappointed old man. And he speaks his doubt. But here's part of the, the wonderfulness of this text. God does not jump all over Abraham. He does not chastise Abraham for having doubts and wondering, how in the world is my life going to make sense in the direction it seems to be going right now. And this is where God addresses the doubt. The doubt is addressed. He doesn't chastise Abraham for having the doubts. He's allowing Abraham a moment of realism. And, and, and Abraham is saying, in my heart of heart, I know you exist, but I, how can this be? And God accommodates himself to Abraham's doubts and fears. And God takes Abraham outside. You remember that the way that Melchizedek referred to God at the end of chapter 14 as we get ready to go into chapter 15 where we are this morning. He refers to God as El Elyon, God Most High, the creator or the possessor of the heavens and the earth. And he takes Abraham outside, the creator and the possessor of the universe, as Melchizedek described God, puts his arm around this sad human being and takes him outside and he says, Abraham, look up at the sky. And count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Say it with me. So shall your offspring. A couple of years ago, Shane West and I, hunting up north, and the place we were supposed to sleep was, I mean, just infested with, with uh, literally hundreds and hundreds of black widows. Big ones. Little ones. Middle-aged ones. Mean ones. So Shane and I ended up sleeping in the back of Shane's pickup on, on top of about 20 bags of deer corn. Pretty comfortable. Not a waterbed, but pretty comfortable. We're laying there, and we're looking up at the sky out in the middle of nowhere. 
and we see all of the, the stars up in the sky and there's just something, as you know, when you look at the sky, you, you, you seem really small and it's humbling and he and I begin to talk about God. I think even, you know, somewhere as we were talking about God, we even tried to sing a hymn together and uh, I'm telling you right now, it wasn't Willie and Waylon. Uh, maybe it was unwilling and wailing, but <laughs> but, it w- but it was just this wonderful moment with, with a brother looking up at the stars and just thinking about the vast greatness of God. And, you know, to keep us from getting caught up in the, the loftiness of all of this thought, you know, God caused it to start raining on top of us in that moment. But here's the thing to remember about all of this. In light of Abraham's doubts, the stars are not an argument, but a revelation. God's not trying to argue Abraham into anything. The stars are not an argument, but they're a revelation. It's not the stars that make the promise believable. What makes the promise believable is the one speaking, the one who made the stars. This morning, I I, I was talking to Ben uh, and, and talking about this very point that, that God's not arguing Abraham into anything. It would be like if I went to Ben, I said, you know what, man, I just really love you, and I'm going to give you a dime for every star that you can count. And I asked Ben, do you believe that? And he says, no. And I said, why? He said, because I don't think you have that much money. And so it wasn't necessarily the words that were being said that were believable, unbelievable. It was the person, myself, as a Texas preacher, that made the the, the paying out of this gigantic amount of money unbelievable. That's what's happening with Abraham, except it's not South Texas preacher, it's God himself. He says, look at those stars. And Abraham knows who made it, right? It's El Elyon, the creator and the possessor of the heavens and the earth. And it's the one who made the stars that makes it believable. And for the first time, we're all the way in 15 chapters into Genesis, 15 chapters into the Bible, and we read for the very first time that somebody believed God. First time. Abraham believed the Lord. And he credited it to him as righteousness. You see, friends, the God who makes the promise is also the one who makes the promise believable. Many of you know the name Corey Ten Boom. Young girl during World War II. She and her family lived in Amsterdam, Amsterdam, Holland. Uh, they were very, very, very devout Christians. They helped Jews to escape during World War II, the, the Nazis, by providing a hiding place in their home, and it became the, the title of a book that she wrote about those experiences. How many of you have read The Hiding Place? If you've never read it, get it, read it. It's an absolutely stunning tale of faith in the midst of danger, when life doesn't make sense. Well, the Nazis raided the home of the Tin Booms in 1944, just a year before the war is going to be over. And Corey, along with her sister Betsy, end up in the Ravensbrück concentration camp. Her sister Betsy dies December 16, 1944. She, smi- she dies with a smile on her lips. 
Her last words to her sister were, in this concentration camp, there is no pit so deep that he, meaning God, that he is not deeper still. Less than two weeks later, Corey was released from Ravensbrook, and this woman, Corey Tinboom, after all she went through, said these words. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. That is what Abraham has figured out. And people of faith ever since Genesis chapter 15 have lived and believed this truth. We find it over in Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah in the midst of all of that destruction says, Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth. There it is, possessor, creator of the heavens and the earth by your great what? Power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. And that's a really important thing to remember when you find yourself in choppy waters in life. Ever been there? And that's why when you find yourself in those kinds of waters, you need an anchor. The anchor is what you need to get beneath the choppy water, to get beneath the, the waves and to get beneath the wind. And it's that anchor that gets below that water, gets below that storm, and gets into the rocks, and it gives you a foundation. And an anchor is what God is, is giving to Abraham. God gives Abraham an ever-deepening revelation of his being. And that's when we find that he is going to go even deeper, and that's where this anchor is revealed. God tells Abraham, and it's sort of a strange part of the story for uh, people the modern world and the Western world, God tells Abraham to bring heifer and a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a pigeon. And a Abraham is not being told, you've got to go, I mean, he just knows that this is what's going to happen. These animals are going to be cut up, and it's being, they're being cut up for a reason. God is going to make a covenant with Abraham. Now, this is the basic covenant form in the ancient world that you find between two great individuals or two great beings. You come to an agreement where each party says, I believe this, and I'm, I'm going to uphold my part. And the other party says, I understand what you're saying. I understand that I'm part of this too, and that I'm responsible for this, and I'm going to uphold my part as well. And at the end, both parties walk through the cut pieces of the animal, signifying that they understand the sobriety of this covenant or this agreement that they're entering into. That if they don't uphold their end of the bargain that what happened to those animals should happen to me. The word in Hebrew is karat berit, to cut a covenant. And it's a pretty amazing thing that, uh, that God would do this. He is basically saying, God is basically saying to Abraham, in light of Abraham's doubts, he, he's not chastising Abraham, he's not saying, Abraham, bad, 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 bad. What he's saying is that I'm going to accommodate you in a way that will help you to understand who I am in my relationship with you. 
God is saying that if I don't uphold my part of my part of this agreement that what happened to these animals should happen to me that everything about me that is infinite power will become finite that my immortality and eternal nature will become you know temporal that 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 my power that created the heavens and the earth and I possess them is going to become weakness now don't miss the significance of this this next piece of this where in the text does it say that Abraham walked through the middle of those animals it doesn't because God walked through it for the both of them Abraham doesn't walk through the pieces in covenant with God God walks through for the two of them and there's this great darkness that falls and and it's not just darkness it's a weird darkness it's the kind of darkness that's not normal and because it's not a normal darkness there's this kind of feeling of foreboding and and that's when he sees the smoke and the blazing torch go through those pieces and and it's a terrifying moment but God walks through the pieces for the two of them God is willing to pay the price he's willing to pay the penalty for both parties if his end of the bargain is not upheld this will happen to him if Abraham's part of the bargain is not upheld this this, this will happen not to Abraham, but will happen to God. God is embracing the penalty for both parties. The God who uses suffering to bring out the best version of yourself. Remember we talked about this in, in, in the book of James, the beginning of, of, of this year. Like one of the reasons that God allows suffering is that suffering does something in terms of helping us to grow up in our faith. That as long as we live in a fallen world and our faith and our trust is in God, that suffering is going to do some teaching and some molding and some transforming of us. That when we go through the bad times, we don't fall into a fetal position. That there is a, a poise and there's a buoyance about us as we're we're suffering through this thing with God and empowered by God and with the peace of God but we go through it in such a way that we are literally changed and grown up in our character God does the same things with our doubts there's something about the way that God uses our doubts and accommodates himself to teaching us about himself and about that relationship that brings us to a deeper faith. Hundreds of years, thousands of years after this, there's another weird darkness that falls on the world again. It's weird because it's in the middle of the day. And God the Son after being beaten to a bloody pulp, is literally nailed to a Roman cross for our sins. Because we didn't uphold our end of the bargain. Jesus walked through the pieces on our behalf. 
I don't know if you can gather that all in in just these few moments that we have to think about it. But all the other religions of the world make you walk through the pieces. All the other religions, all the other, any, anything that is not God, the things that become idols in our lives make us walk right through the middle of those pieces. And that's why we, we're so beaten up. And that's why, that's why we're so tortured and at times enslaved. It is it's because we walk through those pieces. But God walks through for us. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. It's by His wounds that you have been healed. And the more that you think about this is the kind of God This is the God I serve, the God I worship. He stops being just the compilation or the accumulation of truths that we read in Scripture. And quite honestly, sometimes we get to a place where we know Scripture better than we know God. In fact, our God is just an accumulation of Scripture and we can spout all of these truths, but we don't really know Him. But all of a sudden, God comes streaming, the truth of God and that relationship comes streaming in such a way that we know, even though we can't see down the road, we don't know what's happening, we don't know about the future, we know that at some point we are going to enter into suffering, but He is our shield. There is nothing that ultimately gets to us without going through Him. That He comes to us and we come to Him as a great reward, as a great grace and a great gift. And then there's nothing that separates us from God. Paul says that four chapters later in Romans chapter 8. There's nothing that separates us from God. And that's what makes us more than conquerors. And as a Hebrew writer will say in Hebrew chapter 6, we have this hope. We have this hope as a what? It's a what, church? That hope it's the thing that goes beneath the choppy waters. It's the thing that goes beneath the, 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 the waves. It's the thing that gets below the, the, the whirlpool and the wind and, and the hail and the thunder. It's the thing that gets below the water and into the rocks. Hope is an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. I don't know what you're going through right now or what you will be going through and where your doubts are going to be exposed. But what I do know is that your doubts, the power of God, can be turned in such a way as to draw you closer to Him and to walk even through the middle of that pain and the middle of that anxiety and that stress and that pain. You go through it because He's with you. Psalm 29 basically says the same thing, that there's this storm that comes into life. 
that not all of life is like worship where we say, you know, ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name, wonderment and, and splendor that's due His name. There's this storm that comes into life. And sometimes it, it, it is so real that it seems as if the world is being rocked and mountains are being made to dance and stars are falling out of the sky and tree roots or trees by the roots are being ripped up. And all we can do is just just stand in awe of the greatness of that pain and suffering in that storm. And David tells us that, you know, God, he tells us the truth. God is enthroned above the flood. Isn't that great? That God, the, the, the storm that's going to cause us to drown, he's enthroned above it, which means that he's, he, he's in control of everything. You know what I say to David? So what? So what? He's above the flood when I'm in the middle of it. And David answers it. He says, and this is what God does. He gives you peace and he gives you strength. And that's what happens to Abraham and that's what happens to every person of faith from Genesis chapter 15 to April 10th, 2016 is that we don't always get the information that explains why the suffering comes into our life, but what we do get is in the presence of God, peace and strength, strength and peace because He's near, because He's embraced us, because He's El Elyon, the possessor and the creator of the heavens and the earth. And that is how people of faith walk. That's how they walk. If there's some things that we, we should be praying about for you or your family or some other loved one that you have in your life, we're going to be singing a song of praise to God right now about this very anchor that we have, this truth of God's anchoring our lives to Him and, and, and giving us a, a firm and a secure place to be in a life, a fallen world. If there are ways that we can minister to you, this, this, is, a, this is the most opportune time for you today is while these shepherds these spiritual leaders are down here at the front is to come forward and to talk to them or to text me with that number that you find in the bulletin the things that you want us to be praying about and, and working with you in the coming days and let's praise god together let's stand and let's sing will your anchor hold in the storms of life when the clouds unfold